Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Layla Latif. I'm Adam Woodward. And I'm Cheyenne Buncey. On the show this week, Indiana Jones returned for The Dial of Destiny, and Hannah Strong got to talk to its star, Matt Mickelson. A family comes together and falls apart in Mother and Son. And on Film Club, we get to revisit Indiana Jones's early entry, Temple of Doom. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, Shay, lovely to have you back. What have you been up to? Hello, hello. Nice. Thank you for having me back. I've been well. Uh, What have I been up to? Honestly, I think it's been kind of like everybody who writes for a living, eyeing up AI a little bit, kind of like, (laughs) hi there, like... Can we work together? I'd rather not. But yes, I've been doing what I usually do, do some writing for some publications. So I'm a freelance writer, uh, been doing stuff for uh, Massive Cinema and of course you guys at Little White Lies. Um, but yeah, I've been looking over my shoulder at AI and keeping well. Yeah, you gotta, I mean, aside from it doing all my transcribing for me, I mean, if we can keep that element, that oh, would yeah. be absolutely great because I, I don't want to go back to the misery of listening to something and typing for like two hours. That's very fair because that is very soul-destroying. Uh, Adam, what about you? Been up to anything fun? Yeah, all good, thanks. Um, well, we're, we're, we're all hard at work on uh, the 100th issue of Little White Lies um, at Little White Lies Tower. So yeah, we got we got the new one out at the moment, Asteroid City, which has obviously just been in cinemas. And we are, yeah, we're kind of now in sort of pre-production mode, I guess, on the on the next issue, which is our, our 100th issue, which is pretty special. So can't really reveal any details of that just yet, but we'll have, yeah, have more to come. And that's kind of looking at a bit of an autumn, I'm think, assuming, that we get to have the delights that? Yeah, so I think this this issue is going to be on shelf a little bit longer. We kind of usually do that over the summer period because there's fewer films that come out. Really, you've got your kind of big, you've got your Barbies and Oppenheimers and uh, Mission Impossible's, and then it's it's a bit of a kind of lull over the summer. So we try and keep that issue on shelf a bit longer. So we're aiming for like early autumn release for this one. And I am excited for the party. I have kept the date in my diary and I will be jumping out of a cake if required. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, speaking of the summer, we do at least have Sundance London to look forward to, which is going to be the 6th to the 9th of July. We get to see some of the titles that premiered back in January when I was doing this festival virtually um yeah what do we got we got talk to me which is like a really gnarly horror film that was brilliant the new nicole holof center anything you guys are particularly looking forward to definitely uh the new nicole uh holof center and also is past lives gonna be there because i believe that is like my number one cannot wait need to see that was one of the ones that they kept from us kind of virtual attendees. It was kind of so treasured that you actually had to go to Utah to see it. So, but yeah, I've heard only the best things about that one. 
Yeah, I think Scrapper as well was on my on my to watch list. I've heard good things about that, which is a British film, but um, yeah, premiered in Sundance earlier this year. So, and it's a, it's all at Picture House Central again, right? It is indeed. Yeah, it's go- it's going to be a really good one. I mean, like, Sundance was like really strong this year when it mm. came to like British female debuts. I mean, not just Scrapper, but uh, Rye Lane, and also mm-hmm. subject of the past issue, Polite Society. So, lots of reasons to be hopeful about the state of the movies. But yeah, we should move on to the movies that are out this week for people. First up, one of the big summer blockbusters, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. Finding himself in a new era, approaching retirement, Indy wrestles with fitting into a world that seems to have outgrown him. But as the tentacles of an all-too-familiar evil return in the form of an old rival, Indy must don his hat and pick up his whip once more to make sure an ancient and powerful artefact doesn't fall into the wrong hands. But before we get into the film, here's Hannah Strong talking to Mads Mikkelsen, who plays Jürgen Voller, a former Nazi during World War II who has been hired by NASA and seeks to use the Apollo moon landing program for his own gain. I'd like to start by asking you about your relationship with Indiana Jones, if you had one when you were younger. I definitely had. I actually don't know anyone in my generation who doesn't. Uh, I think that was the film that we all saw. That was the film that defined our generations. Some of us became film people, and, and basically everyone was inspired to be that because of Indiana Jones. I watched it with my brother when I was 15, VHS, uh, five other films, but we never saw them. We just watched Indy over and over again. So, yeah, that was a love story right away. Did you have, like, that starstruck moment when you met Harrison Ford? Not really. I mean, I, I didn't really meet Harrison. Actually, I met uh, Indiana Jones because he just came out of his trailer with the hat and everything. You were <laughs> supposed to have a meeting, actually. So, so I got a little starstruck watching that, i got to be honest. So he, he makes it easy. You don't get starstruck with him. He, he makes he, everything very grounded and makes sure that we can make a good scene together. What was it about the... First lot of films, like you know, Temple of Doom and Ark of the Covenant and mm-hmm. whatnot, that really grabbed you and your brother. I'm interested in. It's, it's just a fairy tale, of course. It's a fairy tale. Uh, you want to be Indiana Jones. You want to go out there. It's kind of scary, but it's not really scary. And and he always makes it at the end of the day. Those first ten, twelve minutes of Raiders of the Lost Ark, I, it's just it's just mind blowing. It just blows you away. So, so I don't think any start in any film has been that efficient for a whole generation. I mean, certainly when I first saw it with my parents when I was about eight, I had a very similar kind of, this is what a movie can be, this is what we can do in cinema. I agree. I mean, it was so much happening in 10 minutes, introducing a character, a plot, a universe. It it was fantastic. Of course, in this film, you have an homage to the beginning of Raiders. Uh, I would love to kind of hear about filming that scene, which is very intense and a lot kind of happens in a very short Mm -hmm. space of time. You're doing a lot of kind of like... So yeah. between that and the, towards the end of the film, it's like the big stunt it was, work. It was a tricky scene. It's, I don't know, we spent maybe three, four weeks because wow. it's, it's on this train. We ha- we've got to keep track constantly. Where are we? we? We'll have to jump back and forth, obviously. But So it's shot up and now it's blown up and where's my head? Oh, the suitcase is there. So, so that's a lot of puzzles that has to fit in there. And on top of that, I had to speak German. So that was, um, was some brutal days. 
<laughs> you don't you don't speak German in real life, so that was like another. Not not fluent, you know. <laughs> I have to pick it up. Is it not that? Is it not? I mean, they're they're not. Uh, at no, all. not it's at all. A, they have oh. a familiarity, certain words, but the grammar uh, and the pronunciations are completely different. Yeah, I lived there for a year, and I still don't speak German. Yeah, yeah. No, luckily everyone over there was lovely and spoke English. They didn't care yeah, about they, me yeah, being ignorant, ignorant British person. I know that you're kind of typecast a little bit in Hollywood movies mm-hmm. as the kind of villainous, stylish European. Um, what is it appeals to you about playing the quote-unquote bad guy? Oh, it can be a lot of different things, right? It, it, the story has to be something, obviously, that I relate to. This this is a no-brainer. It's Indiana Jones. I would have played a cat. If they asked me. <laughs> then I've done, obviously, James Bond. That's also a no-brainer to be asked to do that. Hannibal Lecter is a very different animal. Uh, you get to spend three years with a character that eventually is not... Looked upon as a villain by the audience, so no, which is not a at very, all. very interesting <laughs> process, right? So for me, it's, it's just different angles, other different stories. Can we do a little different thing than we did last time? So I'm um, just grateful that they they still ask me. <laughs> and with kind of research, I know that there are some actors who love to kind of go deep in and do kind yeah. of extensive processes. How do you like to kind of approach when it's something like this? It's very much rooted in a something that is fact, something that did happen mm-hmm. after the war. Yeah, I mean the. the the stories are there. We know for a fact that a lot of German scientists went straight to America or straight to the Soviet Union. And it's not the kind of film where it's a poetry and a, and a real story thing. It's just inspired. So if we were going into that heart of darkness, I would have done a different kind of, of research. But we looked at photos of uh, Werner von Braun uh, and, and were puzzled by the way he could just carry himself around really dandy. Nobody questioned him. He didn't even change his name. So that way of just sliding into the American society. We were inspired by his look. It was very, like, again, an homage to the um, original films and the kind of, the scene that is, like, really seared into my brain of um, the melting Nazi face from yeah. the Ark of the Covenant. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that scarred me quite a lot as a child. I, it, all of us. I mean, he's a <laughs> wonderful actor who, who brought this character to life. It's just a, something you don't want to copy because... Only, <laughs> no, you only, can't, yeah. I mean, only a few people can get away with that. <laughs> yeah. You've done, obviously, a couple of these big films. Now, you mentioned working on James Bond as well and, obviously, Hannibal, which is big-budget TV series. But I know, obviously, from watching your European films that you love to kind of do smaller films and work at very different scales. How important is it to you to have that balance between making something as iconic as an Indiana Jones movie and then going away and working on something that's a lot smaller? It's not the size of the film that's attracting me. It's, uh, it's because, it's obviously, it's my language. It's my, it's my stories. It's my friends. Uh, so, so we have a, a, a tie together that's a little different uh, so, so we can push each other in, in different directions than you might be asked to do in other places. Hmm. Speaking of your friends, do you and uh, Nicholas Winning Reffin have anything up your sleeves? Not that I know of, but uh, <laughs> I know for sure one day we will, we will work together again. Good, yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm desperate, sure. for, desperate for him to make another movie, as I'm sure yeah, everyone I agree. is. I can't wait. Um, if you could go back in time and meet any historical figure, who would it be and why? Genghis Khan. Really? Yeah. He's a scary man. Yeah. But uh, I said it before, this is, but he's just had this reputation of being pretty cool. It's like <laughs> with all the, all the horrendous stuff he's done, I mean, killed millions of people. I don't know how many raped. He still has some PR people who are doing a hell of a job, you know. 
<laughs> and uh, so it'd be fun to see how. Also, just interesting to see that period. Yeah, it's, it's just like how he gathered all these small groups of clans and interesting. It's a very mythologized period. Yeah, it is. like seeing yeah. the reality. Like so, I mean, I guess it's the same with ancient Rome, ancient Greece. Sure, and there's a ton of places. Go back to Egypt and figure out how they build the pyramids. There's a lot of places. <laughs> Finally, get the answer. Get the answer. The yeah. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you very much. Uh, it's yes, yeah, great to meet you. And oh, I love the film. That's great. Good. Delightful. So, Adam, did you come into this as a big Indiana Jones fan? I mean, what did you think of kind of previous entries? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, they were a pretty permanent fixture, I'd say, of my of my childhood, and even um, well, I, I would I would describe myself as a Crystal Skull apologist as of about a week ago when I revisited it because I hadn't seen it since it came out in the cinemas whenever that was 10 or so years ago and and kind of written it off at the time but re- revisiting it now i know we're going to go back to an even earlier one um in the, the kind of mid chapter of the original trilogy later on but yeah crystal skull i thought was 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 better on a second on a second watch actually um so so i, I my expectations for this one i think were, were helped a little bit by that but um yeah, definitely, definitely a big indie fan um, going into this and a huge Harrison Ford fan. And I got to say, he is, he's still got it. I mean, he's in his 80s now. He, he totally brings that, that old kind of Hollywood stardom, that little sprinkle of stardust that you need in a film like this. And, and I just think he's, he's brilliant. He's such good value. He's kind of grown into this. I mean, the character was always a little bit curmudgeonly and a little bit grouchy. And I think it really suits him now. He's like really wearing that well. Um, with with his age and just the kind of setup of him now being slightly older and not quite past it, but he's in this new era, as you say, and it, it, it's kind of te- teed up in, early on with him. But is is it the kind of like late sixties, early seventies? Well, I can't remember the exact era, but it's around that sort of time. But there's straight away you, you you kind of you get the sense that he's slightly out of step with the rest of the world and 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 the kind of um, the hippie pot smoking youth of of the day. So yeah, I think it's a really good setup. It's it's, it's nice to kind of revisit this this old character and also other old characters who we, we shouldn't spoil but it's nice to see some sort of familiar faces popping up in this as well yeah it does seem that with um kingdom of the crystal skull they did kind of take the note that nobody liked shia labeouf's character in that and so um instead we get uh phoebe Waller-Bridge in that kind of role of um she's his goddaughter isn't that right yeah and it's i mean you mentioned that Charlotte's character is interesting because it has this kind of rear window esque opening kind of quick pan through his apartment, and it just in a couple of shots kind of brings you up to speed with what's happened in Indy's life since Crystal Skull, um, and it's actually quite a, n- a nice little bit of visual exp- exposition there, which which kind of explains why Charlotte's not in this one, and and so yeah, enter Phoebe Waller Bridge as the kind of I, I guess you could maybe broadly describe her as the sidekick, although I think that the nice thing about her role here she, she's given maybe more to do slightly more to do than um, the kind of indie um, female protagonists of, of, of old. She's a bit more of an ambiguous character. You know, she's she's not quite a kind of femme fatale, but she's certainly not a damsel in distress. And I think I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge plays the character really nicely. Um, so she's playing his goddaughter and they, they kind of team up, but they've got kind of different motives and, and they're, they're kind of chasing the same thing. And it's that classic setup really of, of, of them, you know, they end up kind of helping each other on this mission. Um, but there's this constant kind of, um, needling and and and, uh, and and sort of bantering between the two of them, which I really like. And there's only a couple of moments in the film where she slips into sort of flea bag territory, but otherwise, I'd say this is like, yeah, re- really. Actually, I thought I thought was like a really impressive, like brought brought a lot of kind of charm and energy, and and was, and it's just like a really nice foil for for Harrison Ford in this. 
mean, normally with these films, Shay, they kind of have like the MacGuffin, the thing that they are after. But in this case, the Dial of Destiny itself is a bit more central to the plot than the than just kind of the thing we need to get. Did all of that kind of, uh, the, I suppose, the plot machinations that we shouldn't give away that it created work for you? Yeah, they did. They did work for me. I feel like... Um, Yes, this is very central to the plot. And also, again, not to give things away, you kind of, I felt I had a better understanding of it as the kind of centre of the plot because of their, shall we say, exposure to it. Whereas before, sometimes it's more, you never really see it or it's just something that they're journeying towards. So you're a bit distant towards it. Um, Full disclosure, before this podcast, I had not seen any Indiana Jones films. I Yes, I had not seen a single one. Uh, so for this podcast, I decided that I was just going to watch all of them in one go, uh, which I actually enjoyed. Um, so no, yeah, different to Adam. Like they were like never on in my house. Uh, so obviously I knew what they were, um, but I had just never, was never really familiar with the character of Indy. So like this was a nice, like compact experience. So just seeing them one kind of after the other with very little pause, everything kind of progressed in a different way for me. That's amazing that you, um, you re- did you did literally do them all in one hit? Um, so I did... The first two in one day and then the other um, the other ones like in just concurrent days up until the actual like going to see Dial of Destiny. But yeah, my my actual reason, I believe anyway, that I never watched Indiana Jones growing up is that my mom didn't really like Harrison Ford. Um, oh. I know. Yeah, she was. According to her, it was either Harrison Ford. It was Harrison Ford or Richard Gere for her. And she was a Gere woman. So there was no. Indiana Jones on when I was younger she wasn't so yeah I guess I just grew up and then it just wasn't a thing to me so yeah but it's good to join better late than never oh, but this is like a Rolling Stones versus Beatles thing like you don't have to choose I mean this is what I said to her but for her that was the choice that she made and it has clearly influenced my life so we've got to ask now that you've done all of them how are you going to rank them oh okay because I thought about this So for me, the top spot is kind of between Raiders and Last Crusade because I I enjoyed the kind of Sean Connery of it all in Last Crusade. Again, we'll talk about Temple of Doom. I think coming off the back of Temple of Doom, it was a lot more fun, lighthearted, kind of, again, capturing what Raiders was. So, But for now, I think I'll go Raiders, Last Crusade, Dial of Destiny, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which, yeah, I was kind of looking at Dial of Destiny as will it be better than Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which for me it was. Well, that, that's something at least. A little bit damning with fake praise. <laughs> I mean, these these movies are fun, but they're also kind of Spielberg movies. So you, there's a high expectation coming into them. I mean, do you think that like James Mangold was able to kind of make his own mark on it? Or was he just kind of replicating what came before? I feel like, yes, because they are very, very much like Spielberg movies. So even watching the watching across the series, watching them, even when I wasn't like 100% necessarily into what was going on, I was like, damn, these movies are made just incredibly like Spielberg. This is why Spielberg is Spielberg. I think Mangold did a very good job. I don't, I feel like maybe he didn't necessarily try and replicate the Spielberg magic. He just, again, made a very competent, well-crafted film. I liked the action sequences. Again, I wouldn't say they're Spielbergish, but they were very good. So yeah, I think he did the right thing in trying to not copy everything, but 
I don't know if it's necessarily putting his unique stamp on it, but that may not be what the film called for because at the end of the day, it's about Indiana Jones. It's Harrison Ford's last Indiana Jones film for now, I guess. Um, so yeah, you did a good job there. Hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd co-sign that. I think I think he crucially doesn't try to emulate Spielberg too much, but he definitely follows the blueprint of like Raiders and just this sense and this idea of, of Indy and the whole plot being in this kind of constant state of forward momentum and forward motion. I mean, I would say it's a little bit, it's the longest film in the series right by by some distance it's like two and a half hours which it does it does have a bit of a pacing issue but i would say it it does kind of always kind of lead nicely onto the next thing and you know that there's no there's no kind of overlong set pieces i didn't feel i mean in in crystal skull one of the things i I mean the jungle like the car chase through the jungle is is almost like excruciatingly overwrought and 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 overlong and and you know and that's spielberg Uh, so i actually i actually think he he kind of does does well mango to avoid some of that and he and he tips his hat to some of the kind of the more templated aspects of these films like you've got the kind of a to b map sequence which is obviously a kind of uh, a nod to casablanca in the originals and, and actually I, you definitely there's definitely a sense that mangold's gone back and rewatched like casablanca and some of the films that spielberg was kind of drawing from in the originals um so i think it has like a, a nice sensibility my, my my biggest gripe and actually it's, it's rare for a film to to lose me uh before you've even seen like the first proper shot of the film but the the uh the the company logos at the start you know famously has this kind of amazing match cut from the paramount logo into the first proper shot from the film and 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 this is the first film in the series not to not to have that because i think there's some nonsense you know contractual issue between disney who are now distributing this film and and paramount so you get the paramount logo followed by the lucasfilm logo followed by the first shot of the film which i can't remember what it is now because i was just so um apoplectic in the cinema watching it i mean it's like the one thing i was looking forward to above anything else was that little kind of easter egg so it's a bit of a shame that they uh that they don't have that but i think yeah definitely it definitely kind of won me back eventually say the thing that I was quite surprised that came back because obviously these earlier films were made in a certain time with you know certain ideas about representation whatever but I don't get why they brought back John Ruth Davies to be Salah it I mean that I found pretty like jarring like you can kind of accept that brown face was a thing that people didn't realize was bad maybe like back when these first ones were being made but like that was unsettling he, he, he's always been a curious character, I think, because he's he's this sort of Egyptian fixer with a kind of rich Midwayan baritone. He's, he's never really seemed like a, a character that would kind of exist in the real world. It, it's a, it's a very odd character, and I think you know I, I can see the appeal of bringing back a character like that or bringing back an actor like that as a kind of one for the fans. And I'm not really sure you could bring that particular actor back in in a new role, right? I mean, it has to be it's that or nothing. But yeah, he's, I mean, there would I'd say there were more there would be more kind of dubious characters you could bring back and most of them are dead most of the most of the kind of apart from like some of the other sidekicks which which as i say they 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 kind of you know make excuses for for certain people not returning for this one and and some people some of the actors are literally dead right so so it's a a tricky one i think it's i can understand them wanting to bring back that character but for what he actually contributes to the film I'm, i'm not sure it was that broadly necessary but having said that I think it does play nicely into this idea of like, and this is carried throughout the whole series, but I think it's really prominent here. And I think partly why the film works a little bit more or, or a little bit better on an emotional level compared to like Crystal Skull is is this just this idea of like found family. You have that with a Phoebe Waller-Bridge character and another young 
character that, that, that she it's almost like her sidekick Phoebe Waller-Bridge is, is the daughter of Toby Jones' character in this who's, who's new to the series but a kind of old friend of Indy's and yeah there's a lot of kind of um, you know thematically it's, 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 it's dipping into kind of reunion and yeah found family and all this stuff so, and, and, and you know that's obviously like quite kind of openly sentimental and I, I, I didn't begrudge it for that I wouldn't say well, I mean, I do not, if you want to kind of keep onto those warm and fuzzy feelings, I, yeah, I yeah. recommend not Googling uh, what Jonathan Reese davis has said about Islam. Um, moving on to less problematic there, Nazis. Uh, Shay, how did you find Mads all at the centre of this as our kind of dastardly former Nazi and his terrible schemes? Yes, I enjoyed him. I feel like, I mean, I love Mads Mikkelsen, who doesn't? And he is the kind of go-to guy yes you know he does play roles that are not villainous but as we've seen like you know in kind of what fantastic beasts and he's kind of like the one that wears like and also i think to less effect but um in i think the first doctor strange where he was like kaecilius uh, oh, yes. Don't blame me for not remembering. Existential crisis. He wanted to live forever. Yeah, and he had to him. He had like purple <laughs> glitter on his eyes. But he's become that guy that, like, yes, if you want like a good villain or competent villain, because it depends on how you write them um, to come in, then Mads is the guy. I think he did well here. Um, he was a very kind of cool, collected kind of Nazi. Like, I mean, you know, we do get to see flashes of him. Um, in the beginning kind of and then some time passes when he then you know is older with uh with indiana as well um and trying to pretend that he's not a nazi which is also interesting um there were some parts where and again i think this is just me being a fan of mads mokerson where i would have maybe liked to see him be a little bit less controlled just because i feel like that would be fun and i think it would be he'd be good at it but again like he was very confident. He did what he came to do. And he was quite sinister in certain scenes. And again, he was a good kind of indicator as someone who knew Indy back when they were younger and now seen the passage of time. And again, it's kind of feeding into, you know, time has moved on. And for him as well, he represents more so almost than Indiana lost time and wanting to kind of go back in a very major way and change things and back to a certain kind of perceived heyday. Um, mm-hmm. So that was also very interesting to see as well. And I think he he got that across really well. That was some of the most skillful dancing around spoilers. I've yeah, well done. Heard in a long time. But yeah, he, I mean, his whole, his whole thing is like, we we lost the war. Oh no, we didn't lose the war. Hitler lost the war. So he's kind of bummed, bummed that Hitler, you know, d- dropped the ball basically. But he doesn't, I mean, you don't really get a sense of like what he would do differently or what, you know, what his kind of vision for the Third Reich would be. But he, it's kind of enough to just have him there as this kind of de, fa- de facto kind of, you know, unrepentant kind of Nazi. Um, and, you, and you kind of introduce, as, as you mentioned, with this kind of, this prologue, which is a nice nod, I think, to the Last Crusade actually with this kind of great change. Uh, train chase and a slightly younger indie than we see in the rest of the film with it does, does slip slightly into like uncanny valley territory a little bit with the digital de-aging i guess they would have done the same on mads right but for some reason i think he maybe it's just with makeup with him because he i think he looks a bit more like normal and you, and you buy that a bit more than the than the young harrison it's just something a bit off about it i think it might be something to do with harrison's voice where he sounds his age so even with the de-aging it kind do, of doesn't right? feel like a young man yeah, because I was watching this with, with Hannah uh, Strong and I, I, I kind of whispered to her, his voice doesn't sound right. Is it someone else's voice like trying to do a younger... But they, do you think they've like like digitally 
de-aged his voice as well. I think some some shenanigans have been <laughs> been had, but uh, yeah, I did find it not entirely convincing. But you can kind of forgive it in such a kind of heightened world such as this. Um, but yeah, let's get some scores on this before we move on. Uh, Adam, do you want to go first in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? Yeah, I think anticipation would probably be about a three based on the recent rewatch of Crystal Skull. And actually, I think Mangold is a, is a fairly safe pair of hands. And, and David Cup, who's the who's one of the screenwriters, has been involved who's involved in a few of these and has worked with Spielberg quite a lot in the past on like Jurassic Park and stuff like that. So I always felt like they, they had the kind of right team in place. Definitely in enjoyment, lost lost the star immediately with the lack of the Paramount logo match cut. I'm afraid. So I'd probably, yeah, let's give it a th- let's give it a three again for enjoyment. I think it has enough there for for fans of the series re- returning to this world without kind of falling too much into just crude fan service. Basically, I, th- I think it is it, it is its own thing enough. But yeah, maybe maybe a two in retrospect. I think it's like it's fine, but it's a bit it's a bit long and 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 not really sure it holds up to any of the original trilogy. Shay, what about you? Yeah, so for anticipation, as someone who had not seen any of these films about a week and a half ago, a two. But also, I think because, especially because I didn't have the connection to the films, it was kind of like, oh, another cash grab, everything's a sequel. So that was my anticipation. But enjoyment, I'd give it a three. I liked the action. I feel like this was the film where... Because of it was dealing with Indy being older, I felt like I finally had a connection to the character. And I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge was very well deployed. However, there were issues with the pacing, definitely in the middle, um, which I think then brings my overall to three. So a solid improvement from Crystal Skull. But yeah, the pacing um, was not great. Yeah, I think I'm at about a three, four, three as well. I mean, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Jez Butterworth coming on. I mean, he's one of my favourite playwrights of all time. It was quite. See the guy that wrote Jerusalem. It was intriguing. He wrote Jerusalem. And he wrote The Ferryman, which are both excellent. <laughs> but yeah, four. It was just kind of nice to be reunited with this team. It does like you know, I grew up with these movies and like time spent with like Harrison Ford doing his Indiana Jones stick is always going to be good fun but yeah three in retrospect I mean perfectly nice time at the movies but not one that's kind of going to rank highly yeah I think probably with you Shay I think this is maybe four out of five or three somewhere around that in terms of Indiana Jones movies next up it's Mother and Son Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. In the late 1980s, Rose moves from the Ivory Coast to Paris with her two young sons. Spanning 20 years from their arrival in France to the present day, this film is a moving chronicle of the construction and deconstruction of a family. So Shay, this is obviously a much smaller film, but kind of dealing, I guess, with some similar themes of like time passing and found family. I mean, what did you make of it? Um, I really, really liked this film. It's weird to say where it was like, there was a lot in this film that was very stirring, very haunting, because obviously it's kind of the relationship between a mother and her sons over time and kind of how it comes together and then how it slowly starts to fall apart and it really just explores in some ways the kind of inherent transference of some of like your you know from a parent to a child their their traits how and how some of their decisions um can affect that child and how they process and see the world so there was a lot in there that they really pack into what is again like quite a small film and quite a subtle film um it's a film that again doesn't necessarily shout about a lot of things and there are you know also some themes because they have come from the ivory coast to france where it kind of looks at the progressing changes in attitudes towards immigration and again these things are kind of threaded in there's not really a big song and dance made about them but it's just more like context for the viewer that again enriches and further kind of strengthens some of what Rose, who the mother is, some of her decision-making, some of how she feels at the time, and then juxtaposes that with how her sons are now living, because of course, spoiler alert, attitudes towards immigrants uh, got worse. Um, So yeah, so kind of seeing how things were when she first came and how that affected her and her young sons, and now how it affects her sons as they are adults. But yeah, just really, really skillfully done. So heavy subject matter does have some really great moments that do show joy and levity um, that I really liked. But um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Adam, you equally enthused? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think Shay's captured it really nicely there. It's a film which kind of always ha- has a really strong sense of like time and place, even when it's spanning this, this you know, like 20 years, is it? It's quite a long time. And it's a, it's quite long, right? It's, it's, it's about two hours, um, but, it, but it doesn't kind of rush through that. I, I like the way that it, it sort of weaves in and out of the characters' lives and, and you get other, other characters kind of dropping in and out. And there's a lot which happens kind of off camera, right? There's a lot which, which you don't get to see, um, which I think speaks volumes to the kind of characters' experiences. The only, only thing I'd say is like, I think the, the, the actor who plays 
his rose, um, is it Annabelle Lingrone is, is just so good. And I, I do think, although obviously, you know, the, the clues in the title as to the kind of um, the main subjects of this film, I think the second half of the film focuses more on the sun and she, she takes a bit more of a backseat, but she is just so f- phenomenal in this. I, I think the film loses a little bit of, of, of kind of momentum when she's off screen. And maybe that's mainly because she's so, I mean, she's just in every scene in the first sort of hour or so of the film and she's just so powerful and you kind of really, yeah, you, you really kind of like empathise with her and, and kind of feel her experience. And that's not to sort of um, take anything away from the, the performance of the, the, the actor who plays the titular son, but I, th- I just think by comparison, I, th- I think she's just so strong. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with, with Shay on this one. It's very, very uh, pleasantly uh, surprised with this one. I mean, you've got uh, two pairs of actors playing the sons, right? I mean, did you, Shay, were you kind of impressed by the, how they seemed like the same person in both kind of iterations? Um, I mean, they they don't necessarily resemble each other physically, but that's fine. I think because the passage of time between, so when we first meet the two sons uh, with their mother, they are like very young. So I think the youngest son, Ernest, looks probably no like he's an infant, five like, four yeah maybe five, that, four, five. Like, yeah, yeah maybe and then uh jean he looks to be maybe is he less than 10 they again they're not crazy specific about so when it first starts it's 1989 but then as they move through time we never really know what year it is there are maybe some snippets that you can guess at but they don't necessarily make it clear how old the sons have become but there's quite a significant time jump from um when we first see the sons to the next set of sons that we see so they're more teenaged i feel like jean might even be an adult or a young adult i'm not entirely sure because he, he seems to be engaging in stuff that a young adult would engage in but teenagers also do so i'm not i'm not entirely sure but um yeah it's it's quite a big change but again i think there isn't necessarily a lot of similarity because their life circumstances have changed quite a bit so the jean that we see at the beginning who again is kind of left to be a child is very different from the teenage slash young adult jean who now is needing to emulate a parental figure because some of the choices that Rose has made mean that she's not there all of the time. So that's very different. Um, But I do feel for Ernest, um, he maybe is the most stays like the most similar potentially until the end. And again, I think some of that is what the, the story or the narrative is about where it's kind of the the mother and son is the mother and the oldest son. And in some ways the youngest son is shielded from a lot of those things he is affected but not in the same way as the eldest son is in some ways because you know some of the mistakes or perceived mistakes of the mother can sometimes impact the oldest first before it then filters down and and, and reaches the youngest so I thought that was pretty interesting yeah the dynamic between the two brothers especially as they get older as well is really is really interesting and it's quite a kind of tragic departure of the, of the older brother at one point and yeah he, he's he's played by an actor called uh, Stefan Back who listeners may recognize from appearing in the last two Wes Anderson films so he's in uh, he's in the French Dispatch in the Timothy Chalamet story um and then he's in yeah he's in Asteroid City as well briefly I thought I recognized him he was yeah I thought he was brilliant <laughs> yeah he's really good you mentioned there's this kind of like political element to the story where it's uh, kind of looking at the way that immigrants are being received over the course of these 20 years. I mean, was that kind of like done in a heavy handed way or do you think that like the sort of messaging of it all worked within the story? 
Um, I don't think it was heavy handed. Again, like I think it was like small wisps, like you might hear on the TV, like who was the president at the time, like Jacques Chirac and different policies. And then there is a scene um, towards the end of the film where one of the sons has a direct interaction with the police that is clearly like quite prejudiced. But aside from that, it's not necessarily something that I think was overdone. I also don't think it was underdone. So I think it is important to the story, but I think you get just enough of it to let the actual story, again, it's just framework. It's really just about the relationship between a mother and her sons. And that is what is spotlighted, rightfully so, I think. Mm. And but I think early on when you see, so they come over and initially stay with their kind of relatives of, of some kind, I think. And there's this sense, so, so Rose's character gets a job at uh, working as a cleaner, but you, you get this sense of like, the, you know, the, the rules that might apply to kind of like anglicised like white, white French people. They're, they're having to follow almost like a different set of rules, right? And, and she's, she's constantly being kind of reprimanded at, at home by these relative, older relatives who've, who've been there and experienced it and saying like, look, you need to kind of like buck your ideas up a little bit and, and we've, we've got you this job. And I just think the little subtle ways of communicating between those characters is really interesting and kind of hinted at the kind of, the, the, yeah, the, big, the bigger picture really of like what that experience is like. Um, and just just this idea that you can't put, put a, a kind of foot out of line, basically. And yeah, I thought that was like really, really interesting the way it kind of sets it up. Uh, and as you said, it's not, not at all heavy handed in that sense. Well, we should get some scores on this before we um, look at some perhaps slightly more problematic fare. Um, Shade, do you want to go first in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? Yes. So in anticipation, uh, I'll give it a four because I... I'm very interested in that subject matter. I'd heard good things about it. And yeah, it just sounded very fascinating. And I quite I quite like stories and narratives that kind of go follow the passage of time from different characters' perspectives. So that would be anticipation. Enjoyment, I would give it a three. I think it was a really skillfully built story. There are a lot of scenes in it that were really transfixing. I do feel like potentially towards the end, the pace kind of slowed a little bit, which is again, when we were dealing with the youngest son, but I did think it finished quite strong. And also, you know, some of the themes are quite haunting. So there was only so much I could wildly enjoy. Um, But in retrospect, a four, I think it was really well acted and uh, definitely a film that will probably stick with me for quite a while. Adam, what about you? Yeah, I'd say maybe three in anticipation. I had seen the, the director's previous filming at Cannes about five or six years ago, um, Jeune Femme, which is which is worth worth seeking out as well. So kind of familiar with her work, but probably a three and then four four for enjoyment and maybe a three for in retrospect. Huh. What, why did it kind of slightly cool as uh, after it finished? Just, just think in terms of, yeah, sort of what Shay mentioned about the pacing and... and um, yeah, I just I just think na- narratively, I think it was it, it, it's kind of very compelling in the moment, and um, it, it, you know, as, as you say, kind of like de- dealing with some like very heavy themes in a very with with a very light touch, which is not an easy thing to pull off at all. But yeah, just didn't didn't quite kind of hold hold me for the full duration. So probably not not probably not one I would like rush to revisit just for that reason. Well, we're, next up, we get to revisit something that really was very different in my memory than it was in actuality. It's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Mm. 
1935, Indiana Jones is tasked by Indian villagers with reclaiming a rock stolen from them by a secret cult beneath the catacombs of an ancient palace. So, Adam, this is a wild film. <laughs> I don't know what I remembered, but like even within like the first 20 minutes, it's so frantic and so much happens. And yeah, couldn't be made today for some for multiple reasons. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, it's it's a curious one, isn't it? Because obviously in the in Raiders, you, you kind of end up with with Indian Marion kind of riding off into the proverbial sunset. And, and this one then, I think because... For whatever reason, Karen Allen's not in this in the second one. They shift it and make it actually a, a prequel. So it's the second in the in the series, but it actually takes place before Raiders. And they introduce um, Kate Capshaw's uh, character, who is who is uh, Mrs. Mrs. Spielberg as well, to proceedings in this amazing opening set piece, which is like this song and dance number. I mean, anything goes is like the the, the name of the number, and it very very fittingly sets the kind of tone for the rest of the film, I think. And yeah, then you're kind of whisked off. I mean, the whole setup of them of them just kind of like crash landing in the middle of it, it, it it's it's like northern india i guess, I guess because they've come over like the himalayas yeah he says when they land kind of where are you and he sees a band and says we're in india yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> based so, on so that, his appearance it's just, it's just a kind of totally incidental that they just happen to uh, uh, you know rock up in this Indian village and it's I don't know I think it, it lacks because and and actually we get just to backtrack and, and go back to um Dial of Destiny you know I think I think the great thing or the thing they they probably established very early on in the writers room is like let's get back to basics and like what people love about indie which is like him punching Nazis basically and and searching for kind of lost artifacts etc and I think I think Temple of Doom sort of strays from that formula a little bit too much uh the the kind of de facto bad guy in this he, he he's just a very kind of broadly caricaturish uh character and you know the, the the sort of films. I mean, you said you couldn't make this today. I think I think the, it's kind of portrayal of Indian culture generally, Hindu phobia and like Islamophobia and and a general kind of lack of understanding about any kind of non-Western cultures is like a, a long established issue with with kind of Hollywood and 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 even even you know more recently that's that's been an issue, but. Here, I think it really stands out. Not not so much that it's like perpetuating certain stereotypes. It just has a complete willful ignorance towards the culture that it's depicting. Right? I mean, the whole the whole kind of dining feast scene where they're eating like chilled monkey brains and you know cutting open the, the belly of a snake and it, it's it's almost like kind of farcical the way it's the way it's portraying this. And to be honest, I think beyond beyond the kind of yeah Hindu phobia and, and and the kind of racism of the film, it's like just not very good. I mean, like just the plot isn't is just not very good and it's not not very interesting. It has some it has some great characters. I think Short Round is 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 a kind of all time indie character and. I think the opening set piece, as I mentioned, is is one of my favourites, if not my favourite in the whole series. But I think it just, yeah, it doesn't really hold up narratively. Yeah, it does have that kind of fun, propulsive energy of it's just always moving at such a pace and like, you know, it kind of doesn't take its foot off the gas. But I don't know. I remember the chilled monkey brains, but like at one point somebody's just like eating live eels out, <laughs> out of the belly of someone and it. There's a sort of good-natured side of things that I think you can forgive, particularly in Raiders. Um, but like this, it seemed to like find India like repulsive in a way that was like quite difficult to forgive. I mean, Shay, you you you've seen them all. <laughs> does this seem to have? I mean, how does this kind of rank? But pro- I haven't seen a couple of them for a while. But like, are they all like this? No, I can't imagine they are. So. 
it being my first time watching, so the actual synopsis for this when I was going back to actually watch them, it didn't actually tell me what the film was about. It just said this film has outdated uh, attitudes, which I was kind of like, wow, okay, what am I in for? Yeah, definitely couldn't make that today. Something that stood out to me was I think after they've crash landed in, in, in the village that they end up in, when Indy and I think... I think her name's Willie, they, uh, and Short Round, uh, come to the village. And then it's kind of um, just like all the the villagers just kind of crowding and surrounding them and touching them as these kind of white saviors. It was all very strange. It gave me a flash, well, it's not a flashback, I guess a flash forward to um, Game of Thrones when they did something very similar with Daenerys Targaryen. When she comes, uh, I cannot remember where she saved, but she comes and then it's just a bunch of like poor, darker skinned people uplifting her. And I was kind of like, did they use the Temple of Doom as the template for this? And did they not look online and see that that was not? Anyway, it kind of gave me flashes of that. On the positives, I did like short round. I really did. It was also an interesting experience given that um, Everything Everywhere All at Once was one of my favourite films last year. So that's the Kihi Kwan that I know. And then watching this and seeing him as a very young child and introducing and I was like, oh, it's it's Oscar winner. That was pretty (laughs) cool. But I think he was definitely a highlight in the film. And I kind of was sad when I found out that he wasn't in uh, The Last Crusade. I mean, it makes sense because chronologically... The films are different, but I was sad that I was only going to get to see a short round once for sure. And you mentioned that like Kate Capshaw, who's playing Willie, is um, Steven Spielberg's wife. I'm amazed that this is the role you'd cast your wife in. Like I, this, she, the movie seems to think that she is not great. Like well, everything not- seems to be at her expense aside from the musical number. I don't think yeah, they were married at that time. I think they were. I think this might be the film they met on, and then they were married a few a few years later. But no, it's a it's a weird role. I think it's probably the of, of all the kind of female characters through, throughout the series. Probably it's probably the weakest role, I'd say, or, or the kind of or the most kind of thankless role for for her. And I actually think she she plays the character with quite a lot of like charm and moxie, and you know, it, it's just like any anything that's that's a kind of floor say of Indy's character like him being squeamish around bugs and snakes and things he's kind of like amplified to to an almost like irritating degree with her, with her character and I think yeah she she is constantly kind of getting in the way and having to be saved and you know even in that opening scene she's she's portrayed as being extremely materialistic and chasing this diamond across the floor while Indy's trying to get this antidote to the poison he's just he's just um consumed so yeah I think I think it's a bit of a kind of thankless role to be honest but but she she does I'd say Kate Capshaw does does her best with it and and yeah you know you're talking about the 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 kind of sense of propulsion and momentum with this film and 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 I think you you do get that in kind of spurts but there's this whole sequence when when they're kind of inside the the, the temple essentially in this kind of cavernous set and um yeah I don't know I I think that's where the film really kind of falls down it's just it, it it spends so long really kind of navigating its way out of that and it's just quite boring that whole that whole sequence i think it picks up a, a little bit later on when they when they escape and they're kind of being chased and there's the whole you know crossing the river on the on the rope bridge and actually i remember as a child one of, one of the things that really like terrified me about this film and and i would and i would kind of have to close my eyes watching it was was the the guys being eaten by the crocodiles at the end 
just the kind of cutaways to the crocodiles writhing around with like rags in their mouths and stuff was um yeah i, I as, a, as a child i was like that is there is no worse death that could befall anyone than that that was that i remember that sticking in my mind quite clearly maybe getting your yeah. heart kind of like pulled out of your chest that's pretty bad <laughs> that's that's bad but it's so cartoonishly done right even even i think even as a even as a kid watching it, i was like well that you that doesn't you know that doesn't makes sense you can't really do that i was thinking it's it's a bit scary for children i was kind of like i think raiders definitely has like you know some scary bits like face melters aside but i did think because the tone of this is so dark i was kind of like hmm a child watching well i guess like a young child a youngish child watching this i don't think so but there's also a few as well as the crocodiles the one where one of the lead henchmen who is definitely uh not an actual indian person and it's quite clear meets quite a sticky end um and i think that was a bit a bit distressing yeah, it just, it, it kind of doesn't make sense to me also as a prequel, because I feel like in Raiders, we're taking this man who's kind of a man of facts and of science, and he's kind of actually has to like accept this level of like, that there's kind of magic in the world in a way. And then when it comes to Temple of Doom, he's like quite up for like kind of going along with like, oh yeah, magic stones and like all of these human, yeah, totally fine. Doesn't really question it. But he's sort of heard of what they are, right? He, he when they sort of when they say, "Oh, they've stolen our, our magic stones," and he's like, "Oh yeah, I know what they are." It, 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 and they've it taken kind of, the children. It's quite lazy. Yeah, and they've taken the children. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that was what made me go, "Oh, okay." Well, even as kind of grouchy as Indiana is, like somebody think of the children. So that's how he kind of ends up going along to go and help. But again, it is very nonsensical. Yeah, and like you say, the whole kind of white savior complex of the, that the film has is it's just it's just quite out of, out of keeping with the rest of the series. I think it, it definitely is the is the kind of nadir, I would say. And and actually, you're going by your ranking earlier. This this for me on on rewatch was like probably the bottom of the pile. Even after um, yeah, Crystal Skull and uh, and Dala Destiny. Did I put did I put this at the bottom? I can't remember. Or was it Crystal Skull? Maybe I put because I think the thing that I did like about this film was I really liked the minecart chase. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I liked that. And then that alone would be pretty cool. But then it goes into the whole bridge thing. So I felt like the action scenes were probably right at the end were probably my favorite, maybe quite high up in the series. So I think if if I put this above Crystal Skull, that might be why. But now, given everything that we've just listed off, I'm like, mm, mm, maybe not. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think Crystal Skull actually does hold up favourably because like as much as people made fun of the whole kind of fridge in the nuclear um, blast, I think kind of a raft off a, out of a plane mm. is like, I take my odds with the fridge. They go out on this raft and just hit hit the sort of peaks and, and, hit the, and then just carry on, right? They just cruise down this down this mountain. It's amazing. And then I think they fall off another giant cliff. Yeah, right. Into, I mean, Crystal Skull... The, the whole thing as well with it with it being about aliens i sort of remember on the first watch it, it, it not the film not showing its hand as early as it does i mean pretty much in the in the opening scene where they where they're in this archive and they uncover this box and this odd looking skeleton maybe maybe it's just in kind of retrospect because i know it's about aliens but straight away you're like oh it's about aliens like you know it's quite early on that they kind of reveal that so i think i think you kind of have to just kind of go go with it on that one and and the, and the nuke the nuke scene i mean you know maybe maybe the only thing you'd say about that is it's a bit over the top in terms of how he's like blasted 
you know, hundred miles in 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 sort of certain direction. I think if he'd have just kind of stayed in the fridge and the whole town had been like completely decimated, that would have been quite funny. But it's I think that's the probably the thing with that film I'd say on rewatch is like every single set piece is just taken to like they just they just turn up the dial a little bit too far each time. Well, I'm no scientist, but yes, the fact that this man in this recent one is in his 80s doesn't seem quite right, even when you just take in radiation poisoning. But yes, not to get too dark. I'm very glad that Harrison Ford is still around and making these movies, uh, even if I think maybe this one should be buried in a vault. Before we wrap up, we've got one last thing. You guys are going to do some non-movie recommendations. Shay, do you want to go first? What is the non-movie you suggest people check out? Um, Non-movie, I'll go TV show. So if you guys aren't already watching Abbott Elementary, it's on, I think, Disney+. Plus. It's basically a like network comedy uh, made by the amazing Quinta Brunson, uh, which is set in a elementary school in Philadelphia. I'm trying to think what else to say other than it is laugh out loud hilarious like it's just a show that actually just brings joy and not necessarily in the Ted Lasso old Ted Lasso not season three Ted Lasso in the overtly sugary way but again it's just teachers doing their best with what they have like it's a great cast Cheryl Lee Ralph is great like uh Tyler James Williams is great like it again like everyone is just wonderful it has a lot of really cool life lessons but yeah it's just a really good time and it's only half an hour so I would 100% recommend it if you haven't seen it already oh I'm so with you with the Quinter Brunson love I first saw her on the the first series of HBO's uh, Black Lady Sketch Show and I loved that series and then I kept then she leaves and I kept watching it again and being like why have I not watched uh, laughed one time in like five episodes and it turns out I didn't like the show I just liked her yeah I think I watched like an episode of it and then I was like that's okay but Quinta Brunson is everything she touches just love brilliant writer brilliant performer I mean wishing only the best things for her Adam what about you what's your non-movie recommendation I just went to see the Helmer Afklin and Piet Mondrian exhibition at the Tate which I'd recommend if you're interested in that kind of thing I mean it's it's I'd say definitely stronger in terms of the, the, her work that is exhibited there that they have um in the last room there's like the, the 10 largest series that she did which kind of yeah captures a sort of the whole scope of, of human life cycle and it's but her work in general was like kind of very spiritual and and very you know very abstract and and yeah I think I think definitely I mean they, they kind of say at the start of the exhibition that these two artists even though one was living in Sweden one was one was based in um, the Netherlands it's like they didn't actually know each other and weren't really familiar with each other's work so any kind of overlaps in in themes are sort of purely coincidental but but very much kind of like of of the moment you know there's, there's a lot going on with like jazz music and 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 you know in literature and all these other all these other kind of artistic disciplines so it's kind of interesting seeing their work side by side but i think yeah you can, I, I came out of it anyway thinking like i'd see i'd seen a few of her pieces in in various exhibitions before but seeing the full kind of scope of her career and artistic development and then seeing those kind of final 10 huge huge artworks at the end it was like really really kind of amazing i think you could just like spend it spend an afternoon just in that one room alone it's it's pretty astonishing 
That sounds great. Um, is, what, is that Tate Britain or Tate Modern? Tate Modern. I think it's on till early September. So it's on It's on for a little while. God. Yeah. One of my favourite things in the world to do is walk across that previously wobbly bridge into the Tate Britain. It just brings so much joy. You're always like London. You are a beautiful, beautiful place. And, you know, a couple of hours later, you're disavowed of that notion. Uh, but, <laughs> but for that moment, at least. Until you fall in love again. <laughs> So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at TCO London or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, Pixar returns with Elemental and we spoke to its director, Peter Son. The Tobacco Force heroes must save the world in Smoking Causes Coughing. And for Film Club, it's Pixar's debut, Toy Story. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Adam Woodward and Cheyenne Buncey. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. 